Hi, I'm Todd Herman, and I am a peak performance coach, mentor, and trainer to pro athletes, Olympic athletes, leaders, and entertainers around the world. And on this episode of Curiosity Bites with the man with the plan, Dove Baron, Mr. Dragonfire himself, we're going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about the paradigms that people live through. We're going to talk about winners and losers. We're going to be talking about, you know, finding the enemy, conquering the enemy, being okay with the enemy. So many other more subjects that rattle around between the six inches of people's ears. So I hope you stay tuned and dive in. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Todd Herman. He is the best-selling author of The Alter Ego Effect. And he also runs a high-performance organization where he works with the best of the best, whether they're athletes, entrepreneurs, um, CEOs, business people, people who are at the top of their game. And we've been speaking about um, paradigms and how we get stuck in paradigms and, and shift paradigms, uh, opinion versus action and the difference between those two things. Um, we've talked about lamenting when you're not quite there and you wish you would be there. We talked about where Todd has come from and the the how to enjoy the process a little bit. I want to come back to this piece around um, environmental identities. Uh, mm-hmm. If you grow up on a farm, you're a farmer. Yeah. Um, if you grow up where I grew up, which is Northern England in extreme poverty, then you are a criminal. Uh, <laughs> you join the army, the army, um, or you are in, in labor work um, looking for yeah. a job that might have a pension. Uh, none of which appeal to me at all. Um, uh, but, but as much as the chicken coop appealed to you. <laughs> but, but, and, and I, I'm very clear that I couldn't wait to get the hell away from there and did. I left at 21 and got the hell away. But at the same time, I don't think I valued what it gave me until probably I was in my 40s. Yeah. You know, you talked about having gotten grounded in values and stuff. Do you feel like the environment, the people who surrounded you, and by that I don't just mean family, I mean just yeah. the environment, the people who surrounded you, do you feel like they were not necessarily consciously because I don't think it's, I don't think it's malicious, um, but they were trying to form you and who you, who you should be? Oh, yeah. Um, even like... Uh, like I was always driven the the creative side of me was very much a big part of my identity when I was young. And I was, I used to sing in the Royal Conservatory of Music when I was in my early years, like 11, 12, 13, 14, I used to sing in competitions and Royal Conservatory of Music is the, you know, the Canadian, um, you know, music uh, sort of development program and stuff. And, and my brothers, and again, they, they weren't, they were just being brothers used sure. to tease me incessantly because I would go inside of my sister's room. Cause it was the, it, her bedroom was upstairs. So it was easier for me to go in there, but I would go in there and I'd have to plug my cassette tape into the, the dual cassette, um, ghetto blaster that we had. And I'd, I'd have my headphones in and I'd have to listen to the music in order to prepare for that song that I had to sing at the next competition. And they used to barge in and then I'd have to like record my singing so I could play it back for me to hear the, you know, the proper tonality of stuff. And, um, and they used to, you know, tease me incessantly that I was, you know, back then it's, you know, you're, you're a girl and you're a Nancy and all this kind of, uh, crap. And yeah, I mean, it, I definitely 
bothered me sure. and you know probably i caused me to hide out a little bit but not not that bad i was always pretty good at well, this is what I like to do. And I, and I actually, at the time, I actually didn't like my brothers. Like we fought all the time. Um, sure. And now we're brothers. Yeah. And now my brothers are, you know, of, you know, they're my two of my absolute, you know, best friends and biggest fans and all that sure. kind of stuff. So yeah, like that environment is so they don't even, again, especially when you're young. I think that this is probably some of the stuff that gets most overlooked is we all look at the parents and the adults around us and look at them as how much they shaped us. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I think your peer groups, for me, the peer groups probably played an even greater role in shaping some of my behaviors. My values were definitely shaped by, I mean, I did, I won the lottery on parents. I had two amazing parents that walked softly, carried a big stick of action. You know, they were two people who just, they led by action, not by, you know, you know, thank God there was no social media freaking bio pro- bullshit profiles back in the day of influencers that were out there trying to, you know, posture and peacock that they're one thing when they're truly not. And, uh, but yeah, a hundred percent, like the, env- I don't think that people maliciously, I mean, if you were, if you were someone who was maliciously trying to shape someone, now you're going to the class of being a, you know, psychopath. Sure. But, but, the, but, you know, just sort of in the context of that, the, I've often said they weren't bad people, even the criminals that I was surrounded by as a kid. I don't think they were bad people. I think they were trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And part of the tribal thinking is, you know, I, 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 as you know, I worked as a therapist for many, many years. And um, I will say that part of the problem is the paradigms that we hold about certain things in the in the context, particularly of love. I remember having a mate whose dad used to beat the snot out of him and would always tell him it's cause I love you and I don't want you to be a softy. Sure. Right. That is effed up. Yeah. Destructive, horrible, and caused him enormous amounts of psychological damage. Um, I don't doubt that his dad believed it. Yeah. Right. No more than I doubt that if you gave Donald Trump a polygraph, he would pass because even though he lies through his teeth every single day, mm-hmm. I think he believes those truths Yeah, because they are truth for him. And so I think that my mate's dad believed what he said. And so it was a truth for him, but it, it formed, it disformed, misformed uh, this person who became a guy who I knew well. I yeah. think the environment shapes us. And a lot of the time, because we look at those people and we say, I want to help you survive. And if you're going to live here in Lower Broughton, in Salford, outside of Manchester, in this ghetto, mm-hmm. you better learn how to fight. You better learn sure. how to steal. You better learn how to swindle. You better learn how to, all those kinds of things. And because they, they don't see the world beyond that, yeah. the world beyond that is something that happens on TV or in a movie. Did you see that going on in your world as a chicken coop farm world you know yeah well i mean not as intense as yours like that's um but it's more pervasive and subtle in that they would talk about like you know the expectation is you're going to become a farmer too like Mm -hmm. you know kids like oh 
what what piece of the what piece of the land would you get from your dad or would you get from your like or would you buy and right. you know that's the sort of because again yeah. their frame is operating in you know a limited view whereas i was like you like i i remember sitting down and watching i mean i was just in so consumed in wanting to attenborough and the you know world of africa and his narration and it just got my my because I was a creative, I think I stayed really close to my imagination. I imagined maybe different ideas than other people yeah. did. Again, this is where it's like, so fa- I can't point to one thing where it's like, oh, I read a book and that opened up my mind. No, like there's so much of myself. I was always a thinker. My, mm-hmm. my, my mom always used to tease me and say, you know, cause I have this RBF, this resting bitch face. And so we'd be in the car and she would look over at me and it looked like I was scowling or something. And she's like, would you just smile? You look so unhappy right now. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not unhappy. I'm, <laughs> I'm actually very content right now, but now I'm getting unhappy because you just make me, you know, you're calling me out. Um, so for me, it wasn't, I didn't have like those, I didn't have a lot of those people around me that were, you know, trying to shape me to be tough. No. But my, but we definitely had the, you need to, you need to work hard because mm-hmm. on the farm it's work, yeah. right? That's yeah. the beautiful thing about the farm. And it's actually very much influenced the way that I raise my kids is the unique thing about growing up on a farm is that you, you live where you work and you work where you live. Mm-hmm. So there is no idea of balance, right? Everyone's so caught up and I got to balance things between work And it's like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. I, it was integration. So that's what we do with our kids. So I do live events and, you know, stuff. And every single event, my kids have to come out and they got to speak. They got to say something, got to sing a song. They've got to, because I want to make them feel a part of it, that this is their, that this, this is their world too. And, you know, there's a skill building thing there. I want them, as you know, you know, one of the great skills you can have is that of being a great communicator. Because if you're a great communicator, there is not one domain in life that that does not help you in. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things like what you were saying with your with your friend, but I didn't have, with my, at least my own family, I didn't have any sort of like really negative things that were happening for me. But this, but that expectation, that's what I'm talking about. Because yeah. I, I think I even mentioned to you yeah. that, that I remember, like I said, saw that documentary at 14. I made up my mind, I'm out, I'm done. By the time... Um, I was drinking, which in England is legally 18, which means everybody's drinking at 15 in the pub, 16, you know, and I was in the pub with my mates sitting around the table and saying, I'm getting out of here. This place sucks. And everybody was like, yeah, it's terrible. We got to get out and we're going to go and we're going to go to Spain and we're going to go to Benidorm and we're going to go to (laughs) Ibiza and you know, all this kind of thing. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to move away. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. And then I remember being 21, going into the pub. I, I, was, I passed that pub on, in January of, of 2020, um, and, I, and I got this huge smile because I remember going back to being away four years and sit, going to that same pub where I sat around the table with the lads, and those same lads were sitting at the same freaking table. Yeah. And they looked at me and said, yeah, we always knew you were different. Mm. Um, and all those guys sat around and all complained and moaned. And then when I came one day and I said, I'm going, they said, you can't. And I said, why? And they said, Boddington's bitter, the Bluebell <laughs> pub, Man United, Man City, fish and chips, your family. Who cares? Yeah. But you know, there's that, 
idea that you can't leave the village, mm -hmm. right? whether that's psychologically a village or whether, you know, as in your, this is our group or whether it's geographically the village. Uh, and I never bought in. And yeah. I think, and I've said this before, and I want to ask you this because uh, I always felt like an alien in my own environment. Not necessarily, not, I know some kids say, you know, I felt like I was adopted. It's not what I mean. I didn't feel that. No. I didn't, I felt like an alien. I felt like I don't belong here. Did you have that? That's what I mean. That's what I was, when I was saying at the very beginning of like being the extrovert, feeling oppressed. That was my, I, yeah. I didn't. And I think that's a, I mean, I, I want to be careful because um, whether, whether mom or dad ever hear this, this isn't about like not cause it, you know, it was just where I grew up, but I just felt I belonged somewhere else Yeah. Um, as a, whether it was the skills I, or whatever, I don't know. I just, and I think that was part of my immaturity. I did a lot of that growing up where I was, um, and it was just stupid thinking, frankly. It was that, oh, things would be different for me if I was living there. Rather, and, and in, in the end, I mean, who knows what my life would look like if I was living in L.A. Now, you're, now I'm just another, you know, tiny guppy in a sea of massive, massive, sea of massive guppies. So, um, but yeah, I... I did a, t my psychology back then was terrible in the way that I, but maybe it was also the thing that drove me to go out and seek the world too. Right. Yes. Um, maybe I wouldn't have had that if I was somewhere else. And then that would have limited many of the, you know, key learnings and philosophies that I've developed over my life. So um, yeah, but I, I was the same way as I was very much the same way as you that way. But there's an interesting thing here. Um, and it's, um, I don't believe in polarity. Uh, I think that we psychologically we move to polarity, but most things exist in the middle. And so there is a, a wonderful Buddhist saying that says, wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, the story of the guy comes out of the train station and says, what's yeah. it like here? And he goes, what was it like? Where were you from? And said, oh, it was people were miserable. You'll find that here. Another yeah. person comes out and says, what's it like here? What was it like where you're from? People were warm, friendly. That's what they're like here. Yeah. But wherever you go, there you are. I get that. At the same time, I think that wherever you go, there you are, unless you decide you're not going to be. Yes. And that's a different place. So, you know, for me, I was interviewed actually on a radio station in Saskatchewan in 1989 um, on, when I was on a Canadian speaking tour. And the guy said to me, he said, um, he said, who, uh, who has been your greatest teachers? And I said, oh, that's, you know, because I've had all these amazing teachers from around the world. Mm -hmm. and I said, but I'll pick two. And he said, okay. And I said, one, um, one is um, my father. And they, oh, was your father a great spiritual man? And like, no, yeah. my father was a narcissistic, sociopathic asshole who yeah. had this emotional depth of a glass of milk, a uh, source of <laughs> milk, uh, and really taught me how to not be. Yeah. That's an important thing to know, right? It's not, it's not beating on him. It's just like, thank you for showing me how I don't want to be. And the yeah. other one was, was traveling. And they said, oh, traveling. Yes, you probably got to be in all those different cultures and you got to embrace those and learn from those. I go, nope. And they go, what was it? And this speaks directly to your book. I said... I learned this lesson when I was 
20 and I went to France and Italy with my brother and two mates. And we were in a pub in Cannes and my brother and I decided for a lark that we'd pretend we were somebody else. Yeah. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I said I was a plumber. By the way, I have all the plumbing skills of a wet sock. None at all. And my brother was something else. And we decided we we're going to be something. And we were going to be from another part of the country. And we were just going to have fun. And the purpose of it was to goof around and have fun with girls. And that was what we were going to do. And I realized that night in Cannes that nobody doubted what I was saying. And I came away thinking, oh, I'm a good liar which I'd never considered before. But I realized, no, it wasn't that. I'd taken it on, I'd embodied it. So when this, this interviewer in Saskatchewan said to me about the traveling, I said, I made up the, my mind that I had realized that when I was going somewhere, I was telling people who I'd been rather than who I was or who I wanted to be. I said, yeah. so, and he said, well, can you give us an example? I said, yeah. When I first moved to Canada, uh, to Vancouver, the second time when I moved to Vancouver, I came here and went, I don't know if I want to do my speaking world. I'm going to decide to take up a little break. And I phoned, I just looked open, literally flipped open the yellow pages and went, I wonder what I could do. And there was uh, the radio station, uh, Fox Radio, uh, <laughs> Fox FM in Vancouver. And I phoned them and said, with my accent, said, which was much stronger in those days, uh, I'd like to come down and possibly be a DJ. And they invited me down and I got a job and I knew nothing about it. Nothing oh. at all. And they said, what's your background in DJing? And I said, nothing. I said, but I know I can do it. And I got a job. I didn't ever take it, but I got a job as a DJ because I just moved into that place of being who I was doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And the traveling for me was, the, and I said this to the, to the guy interviewing me, the traveling for me was people will not question who I say I am. They will look for evidence that I can, I can, I can walk the talk, of course. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. But I don't have to bring my history and say, oh, well, I'm from a broken background or I went through this. That's for me to know. That's for me to build upon. But it's not for me to move forward with. Yeah. It, does that align with, with you? And, Big time. Okay. Tell Big us time. About yeah. Um, well, f story, when I was just starting out with the peak athlete in 1997, I was working with 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kids all on the mental game and peak performance strategies that I had used to help me become a nationally ranked badminton player and get college football scholarships and stuff. And that was my strength was my mentor, my, my mental game. It wasn't my physical game. Cause I wasn't like six foot four and 240 pounds. I was six feet and, you know, going into university, 160 pounds soaking wet kind of thing. Um, you know, added some muscle, but that wasn't it. I mean, and I was, I, you know, worked hard. My brother worked harder than me though at the, at the stuff, but I had a lot of maybe natural skills. Like mm -hmm. it, it doesn't take me as long to maybe pick up a, a sport. So anyways, here I am, I'm out there and I was growing my business around the province of Alberta where I was living at the time by speaking, going out there and doing as many speeches as I possibly could, free talks. I did 68 speeches in 90 days to launch my business. That's what I did um, inside of, I'll never forget the third talk I did was at a, um, in a sweaty hockey locker room to a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds who had just gotten off the ice playing the game. They came in 
I dragged in my Office Depot crappy flip chart, set it all up as they're getting changed in my suit that was, you know, two sizes too large. And, um, you know, I bought a 44 when I fit into a 40 because I thought that it was going to make me look bigger. All it did is make me look like a freaking mess. Um, you know, so here I am setting up and of the 17 kids in the room and their parents, 13 of them left. Okay. Four left, four, four stayed behind. And I remember standing at the board as I was writing my name and the title of my talk on it, thinking to myself, I've made it. I've made it because I am just as excited right now to still talk about my topic to the four kids that stayed and their parents. Um, and that's when I just, I had this, like, it became a part of my DNA. I had uncertainty before then, but it became part of my, I was, it was a knowing that I was going to win at this. And so anyways, I was doing all these talks and then this one gentleman, um, Rick came up to me at the end of one of my talks, which happened every single speech I did. And he said, listen, I loved what you had to say about developing the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete. Um, I work for the federal or work for the provincial government and we have a new minister who's just come in and he is an absolute bull in a china shop. He is wrecking our culture right now and we need to bring everybody together to fix this could you bring some of these ideas in and facilitate something for the government? Now, remember, I only worked with athletes. Mm. And I think this is the difference between the people who end up getting more from the pie than others. Mm. Your willingness to say yes when you may not have all the skills yet. And so I said, yeah, of course I can. Because the way that it made sense in my head was all this stuff is just human nature. Um, now, am I an expert at facilitation and conflict management? No, but I'm going to go and I'm going to consume all the books I freaking can in the next month because it took about six weeks. I put together a little proposal, did, had no idea how to price it. Um, it was a two-day thing and I priced it at $2,499 $2, and I thought that was just wealth galore <laughs> at the time. And he was like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is such a good price. Sure. But I went in. So to your point though is – it is at these kind of little decision points or opportunity points, your willingness to say yes and step into uncertainty and how much you're willing to bet on yourself in that moment um, that you're going to go find the answer. And I have consistently found that amongst the really successful entrepreneurs, you know, no one came to you with like the perfect next step. Sometimes it was like a massive jump to the next island that you had to um, take. And so, yes, I've, I'm a big believer in 1% improvement, but that's in the stuff that I can control. When the universe shows up with something that is a massive leap and jump, I'm going to say yes to it. That is really fascinating because it takes me into a place that I was going to come to later, but I want to jump into it now, which is arrogance versus certainty. Mm -hmm. I speak a lot about this. Um, I believe in it with every fiber of my being. Um, the arrogance is when I brag about something that I don't really know, don't can't really do. Um, yeah. Or do I can do, but kind of averagely. Yeah. Um, certainty is, owning and claiming this is this is i can do this yeah i know i can do this um and you know and i've said to people um 
I'll ask the question, and I know that you deal with this because of the people you, you know, you and I, we work with a lot of similar kinds of people. Yeah. One of the things I'll say is, um, can you define the word humble for me? And they'll say, yeah. And then they define it and I'll go, okay, so now I'm going to, going to say something to you and you tell me if it's humble and they go, okay. Um, so I say, ask me if I'm a good speaker. They say, you're a good speaker. And I say, no, I'm freaking amazing. I am mind blowingly good. And then I say, was that arrogant or, or was that humble? And they go, it was arrogant. I go, no, it was humble. And they go, what do you mean? Humble comes from an Aramaic word, which means God first. Now, I don't care what you, how you interpret that word, but for me, it's being connected to something far bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. And so I know that if I get I, the ego, get out of the way and I let that flow through me, I am spectacular as a speaker. Sure. If I, the ego, do it, then I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Maybe even pretty good, but not spectacular. The, there's no arrogance in that certainty of I get out of the way and let it flow through me. Sure. How do you, because I know that you are, a lot of what you do is dealing with people who others might see as massive egos. Yeah. Right. Talk to us a little bit about ego versus certainty and that balancing act. If there is one. Well, I'll, I'll give everyone a story. So one of the greatest soccer players to ever live um, um, was a client. We're not, we stay in touch, but he's not a client right now, but oh. um, uh, he'll go down as one of the greatest soccer players, you know, to ever pro. live, whether it's, pardon me? Pro soccer player. Pro soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, pro. Well, for sure. I mean, he's over in, you know, he's in Champions League and um, he'll be top top three, top two, top five. I don't know, whoever, you know, depending on if you like the person or not. Oh, so it's so anyway, you actually personally work with him in contemporary times. So we're not talking about Pele. No, or no, no. Best or contemporary times. Contemporary right. times. Okay. Yeah. So um, his actual, this is why I like, I love it when people say they, they, they think that they, or they're researchers, they stand on the sidelines and they see how people interact or how they work. And they think that that's going to give them some sort of playbook on how to operate. Mm -hmm. No, like, listen, in, in the grand scheme of performance, you got to know what the psychology of someone and what they actually think. That's mm -hmm. why bouncing around between the six inches of people's ears, like, like I have, and like I know that you do as well, is you get to see what people are actually thinking about something. And so when his attitude around the other players, even on his own team are, he is actually personally offended that they're sharing the same blades of grass as him on the soccer pitch. And it is his duty. It's his calling in life to go out there and get them to experience just how much more inferior they are to him. And so that he can hold up a mirror and show them just how much further that they need to go and how much harder they need to practice to even sniff exact quote, sniff my cleats. And so when he goes out there, this, and again, that is to, to the average person, he's never going to say that in a press conference, right? No. And that's why I like, I'd say 95% of the self-help or leadership bookshelf is literally just written for average people to become yep. slightly more above average. That's it. Why? Because most of the people who've written those books are above average people writing to average people. I'm interested in reading and listening to, like I read way more autobiographies and biographies than I ever would a self-help book because autobiographies mm -hmm. show you the grand nuance. Like Tina Fey, the great comedian, her, her, 
um, autobiography, it's so funny. You get into the psychology of the person, the journey that's there, the ups, the downs, the sideways that people went through, and yet they still pursued something. Um, Bob Newhart, who, you know, the, the Bob Newhart show back when I grew up, you know, this is, that's an old time comic. His is hilarious. I love reading comic um, comedians. Um, but anyway, so my client isn't going to go out there and say that no. at the press conference, right? Plus, most of the time, our inner psychology is truly the secret sauce for how we actually achieve things, not the stuff that everyone's watching me do. Um, and so to your point, one of the great issues I have around sport nowadays is people have taken the idea of sportsmanship and they have bastardized it and brutalized it just so everyone else can feel good out on the sport isn't about making you feel good because you didn't win the game or you lost. Like, you know, why should someone like, imagine if Wayne Gretzky was growing up in today's era of sport when he was scoring on average between eight and 13 goals a game back in the 1960s and seventies, or when he was um, a youth hockey player, eight years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, that's how many goals he was scoring. And in interviews, you'll see him say that after a certain point, he would even try to pass the puck. So if he actually did put the pedal to the metal, proverbially, he would have scored fucking 25 goals a game. But kids nowadays, now they're a show off. Now they're this, and they are made to feel bad because they are so much better than everyone else. And so we have this, you know, I call it, you know, society has become oatmeal and pablum. Everything has to be palatable to you. You know, oh, you didn't say the word the right way. Oh, seriously? Like your entire emotional construct of your life is whether is based on whether or not other people are going to say the right thing to you. Like that's it? Like that's how mentally weak you are? Like people- but That is where we live, right? It doesn't matter though. I'm not no, going to, I'm, 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 I'm not going to accept it. And no, I'm going to no, be the one you. person holding this little flame and mantle saying, fuck you to everyone who tries to challenge it because otherwise we're going to have a lot of very average people playing in the pros. I, right? I fully agree with you, but this is, I think, I mean, back to this tribe thinking, right? We're back to this tribal thinking that drives mm-hmm. me nuts. I get it. I understand it psychologically, but I think that, we are so freaking externally focused. Yeah. We are terrified of being rejected. We want to succeed. We want to be the Ty Lopez with his boo- birds with the boobs popped up inside of the <laughs> airplane. Um, but we don't want anybody to think we're a bad person for becoming the Ty Lopez. You know, so like, you know, it's this, it's, it's a balancing act that in my, in my mind, it's a balancing act that guarantees mediocrity. Yeah. Right? So I've got to aspire to greatness, but humble myself, falsely, false humble, humble myself to not look like I'm trying to show off, as opposed to certainty of owning. Like I've talked a lot about and written a lot about what I call the X factor. What is the X factor? And I say, I'll tell you what the X factor is in the simplest terms. It's ownership. Mm-hmm. It's I freaking own it. Yeah. I own it. I know that I am the best in the world at what I do. 
I can find your dragon fire. I can spark that dragon fire and I can turn you into a beast. I can do that. I know other people can do similar things, but I'm the best in the world at what I do. Sure. I have no doubt that you are the best in the world at what you do. And either of us could be seen as arrogant for saying that. That's not where we're coming from. Yeah. It's what we own. That's the difference, right? It, 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 well, the other side of putting out in the world. Yeah, the other side of that too is you have to fundamentally understand too what the actual client or the customer is is actually buying when they're coming to you for say the stuff that you and I talk about. What they're mm -hmm. actually coming to you for is confidence, clarity, and certainty. Because right now they lack the confidence themselves to maybe do it. Um, they lack the the certainty, or they're looking for in someone else that they're certain that they can do it. And they're looking for clarity, which is what's the right thing to do? What's the path forward that's right for me, right? And so um, uh, this, was the, this was the big turnaround for me that I got from one of my mentors, Harvey Dorfman, who literally wrote the Bible of the mental game industry called Coaching the Mental Game. He's known as the Yoda of baseball. Every single massive superstar in Major League Baseball worked with Harvey, passed away back in 2013, 14. Um, and he was, I probably put him up as my, my best professional mentor. And, um, but that's what I learned from Harvey was, Todd, like the way that you show up whether it's for, you know, the initial call with someone when they're going to see if we're going to work together is, you know, don't, don't ever operate from the heels of trying to convince someone. You've got to be very confident in the, again, this is where most people get it wrong is they try to act like they can solve all your problems. I don't, I don't work with you on therapy stuff. You know, I know that in the context of the work that I do, I'm probably going to poke around and find something that's going to be very sensitive or traumatic to you or, or something like that, but I'm not skilled. I'm not a therapist, but that's my problem with a lot of life coaches is they think they can solve all your problems. No, you can't, you know, and now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're problem because you, you can't have gone deep on your subject matter expertise. I'm freaking great at the skills that I have, and I'm not going to apologize for those things. I've got, you know, now 23 years of experience doing them and getting paid for it. But, you know, people are looking for that confidence. Like when they see you show up that way, they're like, ooh, because they want some of that fire. Because don't forget, most people are walking around with an umbilical cord in hand looking to plug it into something to charge themselves up. That's very well put. That is, right? I, I love that. Yes. They're looking yeah. for somewhere to plug their own umbilical cord into. Yeah. And so, you know, feed off. Yeah. yeah. And just, and just like every, you know, socket in the world doesn't look the same my socket isn't supposed to look and not everyone's supposed to be able to plug into me you know there's some people who aren't going to work with me because they want to work with someone who's maybe a little bit more spiritual or something like that right you know and and that's fine go find that person for you and i don't take any personal offense to it um in the in the in the past i definitely did because i wanted to be all things to all people because to you your point, I wanted everyone to like me. And then, you know, going back to, I don't know if you remember those Annie biographies that they used to do. Annie used to do biographies on different people. I, yeah, used to I remember those. Yeah. I love those things. Me and too. they did, and they did one on, um, um, you know, I think it was like the, the, t the 10 greatest leaders ever. And again, it's their lens, but it's, sure. they used Jesus, they used Buddha, they used Gandhi, they used Martin Luther King as examples. And I remember sitting there, it was right after they did Gandhi and they'd just gotten done, I think three or four of them. And I was about 20, 
23 or four at the time. And I was sitting there going, holy shit. Cause my greatest problem up until that point in time was I wanted everyone to like me and I refused to, you know, I just did. I tried to convince people to like me, not in a like narcissist or not in a sociopathic way, but it's just like, I was being nice to everybody yeah. and, um, and taking all of their problems on as my own and not pursuing my own goals sometimes. And I remember sitting there going, holy shit. If Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King couldn't get everyone to like them, why the fuck am I trying? <laughs> you know, they all seem like they're pretty good human beings. And yet people categorically hated them and wanted to murder them. And here I am trying to get some average people to like me. What an idiot. And it was then that I unshackled. I started the problem. I didn't rate that moment, but I started the unshackling process of changing my behavior on the concerns and the worries of other people liking me and you know and then another quote came along and i remember dr phil said this one um you know just said it in an offhand passing comment to someone and i don't remember if it was on his own show or if it was on oprah's show when he kind of got his notoriety from oprah when he said um uh, isn't that interesting you're expecting to put everyone else on the planet on the couch to fix them when if you're if that's your pursuit in life you're going to have a very, very, very long, hard road because not everyone else is going to go fix themselves in order for you and the world to operate in, in your frame. Everyone else has to get fixed. Right. Like what if you just fixed yourself? Cause that's the one controllable that you have. And I remember thinking about that as like, Oh, wait a second. Why am I trying to get everyone to think about me in a certain way? Why don't I just do good work? And if the good, if they interpret the good work, because again, I can't, I mean, who knows, maybe I look like someone that they freaking hated or beat them up when they were a kid. And now and I can't control that. Right. No. Or, you know, they don't like, they had a, they had someone that they had met once whose name was Todd and it triggers them because they had a bad interaction. I can't control that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and when I've said that to people, I had a lady come up to me at an event once and she said, you know what? I actually had a lady who had, um, just recently let me know that she hated me. They were in um, a, a parent teacher group together, like, um, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the parents board or whatever. Yeah. And she said she hated me for most of my kids, you know, uh, career in school. And it was, she shared with me later because we now, now we've become good friends. It was because uh, my name Janice is that of an aunt who was really, really mean to her. Yep. Yeah. And so she said, it's just, it's such an epiphany for me about, you know, getting people to like you. So psychological triggers are fascinating. We're going to yeah. take an, we're going to take another break and we're going to come back because I want to talk about that, that thing of uh, being loved, being hated and why I believe that both, both are so valuable, mm -hmm. um, but maybe the greater value is in the latter rather than the former. Hmm. Come right back. Let's take a little break and we'll see you on the next one.